This is the Bone Shaker Cast. A sideways look at cycling. I'm Gary Fall, and I'll be taking you through some of the stories that arrive at the door of Bone Shaker magazine. We'll be hearing from a wealth of fine folk from around the world, and see the myriad of ways that cycling's part of our lives. We'll be hearing tales of adventure from far away, and remarkable tales of the everyday. We'll be talking about cycling, yes. But in doing so, we'll see how this can overlap with politics, art and philosophy. How it can create social change and enrich our communities. And how it can just simply give us that quiet sense of happiness, independence and freedom. So, let's start at the beginning. James Lucas, the co-founder of the magazine, initially set up the Bristol Bike Project. I was volunteering at Bristol Refugee Rights and quickly identified a group of people who really benefit from affordable, sustainable transport. I just started putting up posters, advertising for unwanted, unused bicycles and sending out emails and they just came flooding in, you know, to the point where I had 15 bikes in my tiny little flat at that point and I was climbing over them to get into bed at night and it was... It's like wow, it's such a this is such a huge resource in, in Bristol, like un, unwanted, unused bikes. And as the bike project started to put down its roots, James noticed something interesting was happening both at home and beyond. Within the first year, the, the project became a real melting pot of people from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life, and and that was really inspiring to be around. And then through my involvement with the bike project and other people that came on board, was sort of exposed to other other projects and initiatives with bikes all around the world and it was at that point I felt it would be good to like document some of this and get it down and, and sort of bring it together in one place and celebrate it. And so James's idea was to bring it all together in a publication. He'd made a music fanzine years earlier with the pal John Coe and John was his natural choice to bring this idea into fruition. For the first issue they printed a thousand copies slung some on the back of their bikes and set off to London town. We took a trailer up with us, full of, full of these magazines. It was kind of cold calling, if you like, you know, we were just turning up with the trailer and one of us would go in and show them it. And, and we had a, like the, a huge success rate with it, like, which I wasn't expecting. I thought we'd be turned away or people just wouldn't be interested, but, but they were. And we shifted all the copies that we took up. I think it was about, yeah, 300. Apart from one, which we sold to someone on the train on the way home. It turned out he was into cycling and he bought our last copy. Anyone who's read Bone Shaker will know how it likes to draw on a human side of cycling. It's not really about how much a bike weighs, it's more about where it takes you. And not so much about how fast you got there, but what was seen on the way. It's really about shared experiences. And of course, when people tell stories, other people want to share their stories. And this is really how the magazine works now. Here's Mike, who runs Bone Shaker with James. He joined in on the second issue. Wherever people are involved, there's the full range of human experience. If you're telling the story fully, if you're really looking at what's going on, the human experience of cycling is focused by the immediacy of, of 
your position in the environment of what you're doing when you're doing it you're there out in the open in the full face of the elements bikes mean travel whether that's local or long distance and sometimes this happens in unusual ways take the zenga family and their eccentrification of the world benny zenga painted a colorful history of tall bikes for the magazine from the Victorian lamp lighting era. And they, they almost crossed over tall bikes and became a completely mainstream mode of transport and then completely dwindled and then were almost solely the preserve of uh, eccentric show-offs. Yeah. <laughs> the Zenga family started to ride their way with their honeymoon road trip across Canada in 1971. And as their family has grown, they've aspired to live creatively and joyously. The Zenga brothers did something really good with them. You know, they've built a load of different tour bikes and taken them on various tours, including one across the United States where they attempted just to challenge all forms of conformity in whichever little town they stopped in. And another where they rode across Africa, uh, they built a tour bike that could be the frame could be unscrewed and it could be packed down into regu a regular suitcase chucked on a plane and then they rebuilt it when they got there and they rode across Africa with it and the idea or one of the ideas of that there were many things they were doing but one of the key things was reversing the spectacle the, the kind of idea that you go to a place like Africa to sort of gawp at the things you see there you arrive in a town and you look at everything and the transfer is the exchange is that way, whereas when you arrive in some remote village on this ludicrous 10 foot high bike, you are the spectacle and everyone actually just comes and gawps at you. Now, aside from riding round on a 10 foot tall bike, this may also happen because of the immediacy of a bike and its rider. Travelling a long distance this way for many people in many parts of the world is alien. People can be curious about the arrival of a stranger on two wheels. And when you're famished, exhausted and lonesome, it shows. You crave a friendly welcome. But maybe the cycling traveller wants to bring something too. Share stories, humour, maybe offer skills. Something beyond dull notions of tourism. Take Dom Gill's story. Who rode the length of the Americas from the northern tip of Alaska to the southern tip of Patagonia, which is a fairly well-established cyclist route but he did it on this enormous tandem and he rode it alone deliberately uh, so that he would have to pick up strangers all the way and he set himself a rule the first day always say yes so if anyone wanted to get on and ride with him he would say yes uh, to force himself to learn tolerance and to trust the complete unknown and to put himself into the hands of this series of strangers and over the two years that he was riding he went through 15 countries and about 24,000 miles and something like 600 people shared the bike about 270 of them for a significant amount of time but either days or months on end sharing his tent and his food and his little billy can of beans at the end of the day and what he took away from it apart from this huge sense of uh, dependence on the friendship of others because for a lot of the time he had to struggle on his own because there wasn't a person who would get on or needed to go anywhere or he was just in the middle of nowhere and there was no one there and uh, the woman with her cage of 12 chickens would have got off at the last village and he'd have to 
plough on. So there's these kind of extremes of solitude and company and um, fear and trust. And the one thing he took away was that actually it's okay to trust people most of the time. Cars rule the roads in most of our cities. Dreamy cycle utopias such as Copenhagen are pretty unthinkable for most of us. Bristol is supposed to be Britain's first cycle city. Yet, heaving congestion, slimline roads and West Country driving make cycling an adrenaline fueled game of chance. It's only the volume of people riding bikes now that by and large make it a cycle city. And America's a different beast altogether. As great freeways circle and intersect the cityscape, car-centric urban planning has made many cities a tricky place to walk, let alone cycle. But not for the criminals of LA. Give me a danger, little stranger, and I'll give you a Give me a danger, little stranger, and I'll give you Then suddenly all these bikes would appear. Well, uh, at rush hour time. Sort of spontaneous demonstrative process, exactly. protest against the way that the city had been designed for cars yeah. and yet cars couldn't move in oh. it. And they'd go onto freeways where bicycles were banned and ride quite safely along the fast lane because it, the whole it's thing was just, yeah, it was kind of critical mass, but instead of taking over the road that was otherwise empty and filling it with bicycles, the roads were already full with cars. They'd ride just they just weave and slice through traffic jams yeah. on what was supposed to be the fastest roads in LA. There's nothing left alive but a pair of glassy eyes. Raise my beer hands one more time. Yeah. Dodging in and out. And the police obviously were completely powerless to stop them because they couldn't get through either. And I think they made the point quite well. And instead of the way a lot of critical mass rides, good though their intentions may be, often just piss motorists and other road users off um, because they're apparently blocking up a road that would otherwise be free. In this case, they, they, that argument just didn't stand at all because the cars had already blocked the road and brought everything to a standstill and the cyclists yeah. just moved freely through it. Really nice. Let's cast our imaginations back to a time when cars didn't clog the road. Nostalgic visions of children playing in our streets, where front doors were always open and everyone was smiling. Laurie Lee's childhood world inside with Rosie only spanned maybe 20 square miles of glorious rural tranquility before the cars came. So what was it like before the bike arrived? 
the very inception of popular cycling in the late 1880s and 1890s caused rapid and sudden social change. I think Jack McDonald in one of his speeches in Bone Shaker said that you know there's been no bigger spoon in the genetic soup of uh, Western civilization than the bicycle because it meant suddenly all these little villages and towns where people rarely ventured more than a day's walk away from where they lived and to them you know 50 miles hence was an unknowable exotica and they just didn't make those journeys by and large. The bicycle suddenly made all of that possible. You could do it alone, unchaperoned. Boys and girls could get out in the countryside and have a roll in the hay and they did in great number and it meant that people mixed in terms of their social scene and geographically and it also led to obviously rational dress and the emancipation of women and a whole series of political changes that at the time were seen as being subversive and wrong and it was assumed that any woman who spent any time on a saddle would naturally think of masturbation and become some pop-eyed nymphomaniac soon afterwards uh, and obviously they were then wearing trousers which was an aberration and a lot of that kind of rational the early stages of, of activism post the proud upstanding uh, almost unquestioning empirical society that had led up to Victorian glory, that stuff began to unravel and a lot of it unraveled on two wheels, I think. And we're just the final, or not the final, the continuing offshoot of yeah. that kind of long-standing liberal radicalism. So this gives you a flavour of the kind of stories we're going to be covering in these Bone Shaker casts. But to get things rolling, we really need your support. So please, at this stage, just follow us on iTunes, comment on SoundCloud, follow us on Stitcher if you use that, share this around, and please just give us your thoughts and maybe share with us some of your own stories. Until next time.